You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This segment is made possible by an educational grant from Shire Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Updates from the Mayo Clinic, focusing on primary care pediatrics and child mental health. Here's your host, Dr. Peter S. Jensen, a childhood and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hello, this is Dr. Peter Jensen, and welcome to Mayo Clinic's update primary care mental health with a special focus on children. And with me today is a very special guest and friend, Dr. Timothy Lineberry, Associate Professor of Psychiatry here at Mayo Clinic and uh, Vice Chair for Education and a Head of Hospital Services. Um, he has a lot of other titles, but Tim, welcome. Uh, your, your presence is long overdue. Peter, thank you for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to be here today. Well, you know, we have a very difficult and touchy topic today, one that I think worries a lot of people as we think about what primary care providers face in practice as they more and more are now doing mental health, whether it be children or adults, and that's the topic of suicide. And I know that you're an expert, and you actually consult with a number of organizations, including the Army. Kind of as a note, before we start, I do work for the Department of Defense related to helping develop the research portfolio for preventing suicide in the military. So none of the opinions that I express today are the opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or Mayo Clinic. So, Well, I think your opinions are pretty good, which is why I thought you'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tim, you know, in my own work with uh, pediatricians in particular, I know there's been a lot of worries about suicide. So I guess probably the first question is, I mean, just how common is it? If you hear those hoofbeats, is it a zebra or is it a horse? Peter, it's a little bit challenging in terms of how we define it. And I think that's one of the struggles that we've had because as we think of young adults um, or adolescents, it really changes. So unfortunately, we break it up primarily at 15 to 24-year-olds as an age group in terms of suicide risk. But there clearly are differences in adolescents in high school versus young adults who've graduated from high school. So suicide in terms of in adolescents and young adults is an important problem. And, you know, the, the leading causes of death in adolescents and young adults is related to young adults. It's either accidents where there's an accident and they die or they're homicides or suicides. And so suicide is one of the three leading causes of death in these age groups. You know, as we look at issues related to suicide and kind of concerns about increasing rates, we haven't seen a change in rates in the past 10 years. At the same time, the death of a teenager or a young adult um, in the prime of their life is obviously a tragedy, and it is a big impact. And suicide is one of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States now. And so why would a young person kill themselves? What we see in terms of kind of differences with risk factors, and I think the issue with risk factors and the thing for clinicians that we think about is that psychiatric illness is very highly associated with suicide and dying by suicide. However, there are a number of kind of immediate risk factors which we look at, which may be things such as loss of relationships, difficulties within the family, uh, access to means. Um, a significant rejection. So it's a combination of things altogether. So there's really not one type of suicidal person and there's not one type of suicide. But there are some common things that we see with association with psychiatric illness, depression, uh, substance abuse, 
uh, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders, uh, sometimes with conduct disorder as well. We see an association associated with that also. You know, I remember um, there was a book by the poet uh, Goethe, you know, probably maybe almost two centuries yeah. ago. And uh, But what happened after he wrote it, there was a big spate of suicides. And uh, I think it was called The Suffering of the Young Werthers. I think yes. that was his name. But that kind of made people think, well, it's an existential crisis. But is it or is it usually a psychiatric illness? Well, it's, you know, as we look at suicide overall, there tends to be an association. And when you are looking at things through a particular lens, you tend to see that. So obviously, we're psychiatrists. Um, and clinicians, uh, particularly physicians, see an associate of psychiatric illness. But there are also a lot of sociocultural aspects with suicide, and perhaps even more so in children and adolescents. Uh, issues with, you know, topics that have come up recently have been related to bullying and then GLBT youth and the factors associated with that. So there are a number of things in terms of the interaction that that individual has each day which are important. And there's an effect of the media. We have things with prevention of suicide that are related to our media guidelines and how we talk about suicide. So one of the things you hear about, and I understand those guidelines for the media, is that kids hear about suicide and then it becomes a kind of a phenomenon or a yeah. cluster. Is that a real risk? It's a concern, and ways that we try to address that are how we talk about suicide. And so one of the things that, that happens pretty often for clinicians is you're asked, what should we do after a suicide or something, or a significant suicide attempt? And with that, we do see clusters with youth. We don't know of great interventions, frankly, related to that. And I think it's more challenging now with the Internet uh, and with news that you get everywhere that it's hard to say that information about a suicide is only known by that local community. So I think we've seen some of that with the recent coverage of suicides. You know, a number of years ago, the FDA, there was a lot of press around SSRIs, and the FDA came out with a black box for the um, antidepressants. And I know at that point, we saw this drop in prescribing by about 20% over a couple of years. And as I recall, this would be probably 2003 or four. suicide rates started blipping up again for the first time. What's happened with that? That story is interesting. And when I say story is because now it really has been about seven or eight years. So yeah. what we saw with that initial drop in prescribing is that there was a blip up with suicide and suicide numbers. But a year or two after that, they dropped. It's hard to know what was kind of statistical at a national level, what were other factors that went with that. And there are sociocultural aspects with suicide that are critically important. I think, you know, as you look at our overall rates in the United States, what we see is a very close association with the economy and changes with downturns in the economy, how things are going with our overall suicide rates. So it's hard to say just, again, kind of like one factor causing everything, that antidepressants caused, you know, significant decreases in suicide. We haven't seen that either. Um, and so that change probably hasn't resulted in an impact long-term in terms of child and adolescent suicide. Now, we do have a lot more data, though, related to uh, that black box warning. And it does appear that there is some signal that there is a slightly increased rate of, quote-unquote, suicidality, which is a real hard thing to define. But the black box warning was actually revised in 2009 and has very good guidance about this very slight increase uh, 
in kind of suicidal ideation, suicidal behaviors compared to others. And that's like 14 per 1,000 prescribed. So it's a small amount with that. And it, it's ironic, you know, when you think about it treats depression, and yet in some people maybe makes them talk about it, think about it, whatever, a bit more. Kind of reminds me of an antibiotic like penicillin. It cures people of infections, but it can cause anaphylaxis in yeah. some. And it's hard to know with the antidepressants and some of those changes if it was related to people not getting treatment. And some of the studies that have looked at actual completed suicides have shown that many of the adolescents who'd been prescribed an antidepressant weren't taking them. So there's all sorts of complexity that goes with that. But there are a number of things that clinicians can do to make an impact. I heard that about the Klebold-Harris case, that, yeah, they were on it, but they actually weren't taking the yeah. antidepressant. Um, we're talking today with Dr. Timothy Lineberry, Associate Professor of Psychiatry here at Mayo Clinic and an expert in suicide. I was curious about, I know you can't say too much for the Army, but we've heard so much about young military youth and the suicide rates. Is that for real? Or if so, what's going on? There has been a increase, a clear increase in rates of suicide in the military and specifically the U.S. Army, which has had kind of the most kind of follow-up and, you know, looking at overall. The rates have truly increased. Uh, it is not just something that's been in the media, but they truly have increased. And we've seen an increase in the rates of suicide in the Army. Hmm. And I'll speak about the Army, though the other services each have different issues with suicide. But uh, the U.S. Army has had fairly clear kind of role in Iraq and Afghanistan and in combat operations, and also by the size of the Army compared to Marines, so the soldiers versus Marines. Related to suicide in the Army, what we've seen is an increase in the rate of suicide above uh, controlled population for the United States and the general population. So whereas before the U.S. Army suicide rate has, since the 70s at least, been significantly below the U.S. general population rate after you control for age and sex. Uh, now that rate is higher. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, the rate continues to go up. And we think that it's related to the effects of combat and you know, being at war now for 10 years and changes associated with that. With not just PTSD, but also increased rates in terms of depression, huh. increased rates with substance misuse, and then also all of the challenges that go with being deployed, uh, being in the service, coming back. It's, it's a concern. We have a number of research efforts that we're looking at, but it clearly is something that clinicians need to be aware of and look for. One of the things that I was taught when I was a resident was this idea of suicide contracts. So if if I'm, uh, as a doc, I'm interviewing somebody and I'm a little worried that they might do something. And then the idea of saying, look, will you promise me that you will call somebody or tell your mom or your dad? Does that work? The simple answer is no. The challenge is it makes us feel better, but it doesn't necessarily do anything from a clinical standpoint. So for, for those who aren't aware, there often is actually a piece of paper that, you know, clinicians will have someone sign that the patient says, you know, I promise not to hurt myself. And obviously, um, if somebody's at a point where they're struggling with kind of killing themselves, doing other things, their follow-through may be challenging. When you look at the research, there's no support for doing that. 
There is, however, some things that are being done right now in terms of crisis action planning, which really is kind of what do you do in the event of a suicidal crisis? How do you keep yourself safe? What are safe places to go? How do you know and how can you monitor that? And so there's some exciting work in that way. But, you know, for those clinicians who are using suicide contracts, I recommend not doing that and looking at some things with crisis action plans and how you can engage the patient in a discussion about how to collaboratively stay safe. So it might give you a false sense of security, you know, in some way may not be helpful to the patient, may even mislead the whole. And some of the studies have shown that patients see it as kind of a treatment barrier um, and that it comes up as, well, this is something I won't talk about because of that. So I see. I think one of the other questions I think our primary care listeners would be especially interested in, and that is, I know in youth, suicide thoughts in a given year are pretty darn common. Yeah. And so what's the poor doc? What are we to do if we have to distinguish between a kid who comes in who's down in the dumps, has some of those thoughts, versus which is what, 20 30% of high school teenagers? The the numbers are, are challenging to, to figure out. However, we can't very clearly say that adolescents in high school have serious thoughts of suicide, think about plans for suicide, and attempt suicide much more than any other age group, and more than that 18 to 24-year-old age group. So we've got some good recent data for that. But it can be as high as you know between 10 and 15% thinking about suicide, and or actually not thinking about suicide, but planning with suicide. Planning. The, the thing I would have clinicians and what we talk about is that the, the clinical pearl with this is that thoughts of suicide are so much more common than you think they are. And when you think of the clinical population and who you're seeing, they're very common. However, we don't ask about the thoughts. And there's some recent data that's fascinating about kind of conversations about suicide. And we many times almost actively avoid it. Huh. Um, and so one of the big things is to, to talk about and almost assume in patients with depression, substance abuse, other things, that they're having thoughts of suicide. So you won't make someone commit suicide by asking the question? No. You no. should get it out there? Yep. And, and part of it is, you know, there's symptoms of depression and there's signs of depression. And so decreasing that anxiety about that also decreases the anxiety for the person. For many people, thoughts of suicide are terrifying. And so somebody saying, well, that's not uncommon if you're having depression makes a difference and can use that as a warning sign to build for treatment. So as a primary care provider, when should I worry? If someone says, yeah, I've had that thought, but, you know, I'm not going to do it. I mean, when do I believe that? Or when do I say, I wonder if he's telling me the truth? Well, I think the the challenge is that many times people aren't telling us at all. So we need to ask about that. And, you know, there's no one who can read minds. So what we look for not, is... Not even you and I? Not, not even not even you, Peter, <laughs> though you may be two centuries old with Goethe. So, uh, so what we want to do is make sure that we're asking about suicide, suicide attempts in the past. We want to go through other psychiatric illness. But we also want to look for really kind of objective signs, significant anxiety or agitation, um, what is the patient's body language like? What are their other symptoms like? And also getting collateral history. Um, how are they doing at home? How are they doing with their family? Are mm-hmm. there other concerns that way? And, and despite that, and I think for the clinicians who are listening, we all have experience with patients who we saw and then days later attempted suicide. And I think it speaks for one of the, the challenges that people have with thinking about suicide is that somehow you're either suicidal or you're not. 
whereas thoughts of suicide and periods of suicide risk really fluctuate over time. And they're associated with rejection, interpersonal things, level of depressive severity, which is a significant thing we're looking for, changes in sleep. We have found that uh, sleep problems are a perspective, independent risk factor for suicide attempts and suicide. Very interesting. And so sleep may be a very nice spot to look for in terms of changes and an entree to talk about things. So for clinicians who are uncomfortable, it's a good spot to start to talk about kind of changes in activity. Tim, before we break, is there anything else you'd like to share in terms of maybe key messages for the primary care provider you'd want them to know about? Well, I think as we look at evidence-based strategies for prevention of suicide, and particularly for clinical things, that recognition of depression and a, and good treatment of depression can make a difference. Those are evidence-based strategies to prevent suicide. The other important strategy is reducing access to means. So talking about firearm access. In young adults, almost half die by suicide with a firearm, um, another significant portion by hanging. But asking about access to firearms, medications, other things that can make a difference, you know, things that you could remove that could help prevent suicide. The other part is to give information about where you can call. In the event of suicidal crises, we have a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week hotline um, for anyone in the country, but it's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, and so calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, there's a number of materials. In your office, you can get some of the cards that are available to give those to people to let them know kind of what to do. And then also, I think, having open conversations so people can call you when they're doing badly. Tim, it's been a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to updates from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you to Shire Pharmaceuticals, whose educational grant makes this program possible. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show and many others, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash Mayo Clinic.